Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is basically taking a look outside of Pakistan and, and sort of assessing, analyzing, getting insights on the emerging rivalry between the United States and China. Um, and as many of you may already know, this geopolitical competition has been sharpening over the last few months. A lot of things are still up in the air where I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. just this week alone. Uh, the president of the Philippines was in town. The joint statement, if you have not read that, is worth a read if you're interested in these topics. Japan has changed its national security strategy. We've got submarine deals between the U.K., U.S. and Australia, all sorts of things happening. Um, so we're going to be having these conversations, understanding from experts about what's what's going on and what folks um, in the subcontinent, uh, frankly, should be keeping an eye on. Uh, so kickstarting things today uh, with me is Andrew Small. Uh, I'm honored to have Andrew join this because I've been an avid reader of his research and analysis on China for a number of years now. Um, Andrew's currently uh, a senior transatlantic fellow with the German Marshall Fund's Indo-Pacific program. Uh, he established this program in 2006. He's also author of two must-read books. The most recent one is called The Rupture, China and the Global Race for the Future. And he's also written a book on China and Pakistan, which is called The China-Pakistan Axis, Asia's New Geopolitics. Andrew, thank you so much for taking out the time and joining us on Pakistanomy. I want to begin uh, maybe at the 30, 40,000 foot level with you um, and maybe help our myself and our audience understand um, what's going on uh, in relation to China's strategy, particularly in East Asia, because that's where the action seems to be. And what are some of the key concerns um, that you are seeing uh, smaller Asian countries or not so small Asian countries, including South Korea and Japan and the Philippines, sort of express or, or be concerned about uh, as it relates to China's rise in the region and what China is beginning to do over there? Um, well, first of all, thank you. Very honored to be able to, to join you for this discussion today. Thanks very much for uh, for inviting me onto the, the podcast. Um, so to start from a fairly removed level, I mean, the macro trends, you can go further back um, be before China's takeoff as an economic power and go through the kind of East Asian growth takeoff, the tiger economies. I mean, this long-term transformative set of changes that you've seen across the, the, the region over the decades, um, much of which since the late 70s has been underpinned by what some called the East Asian peace. Um, you basically also had a framework in the region um, that allowed for uh, the economic ties between countries in the region to, to thrive um, and none more importantly through that period than China and China's um, dramatic economic takeoff through this entire period of time, um, which has turned it into a more and more central economic actor for the region. I mean, we're now looking at plus 80% of the economic output in East Asia being China's economic output. Um, uh, the, the sort of gradual move in which most of the countries in the region then have China as their major bilateral trading partner. Uh, but alongside that, you've had a significant uh, military buildup that has preceded um, in some, by some measures, the largest peacetime buildup um, that we've we've seen from uh, from, from any country. This uh, the military buildup essentially keeping pace with economic growth rates at ten percent, um, and this has meant that China has moved from uh, being a relatively kind of mid tier country when it came to its economic uh, security power position in the region to already looking as if it is a peer competitor to the United States and shifting the military equilibrium um, in the region uh, considerably. Um, and of course, um, alongside this, we've had a shift from a more pragmatic China focused on economic integration with the region. You only need to think back to its uh, handling of the uh, Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, which won, won it a lot of credit across the region, um, to what we've seen particularly in the last decade and a half, um, which has been a China that's also more willing to use its economic power as well as its military power um, to go about achieving um, some of its 
long-term national goals. Um, and at the same time, I mean, the economic piece of this is, is central. Certainly there are countries in the region that have had their mixed experiences with Chinese investment, Chinese lending, but the centrality of China as a trade actor, um, an investor, um, the deep financial ties that it has across the region um, have persisted and where even reluctant countries, even countries that are wary about China, um, have not wanted to cut themselves off um, from, from that. Uh, the second track, though, is China settled most of its land borders. It settled very few of its maritime disputes. Um, and the concern from countries in the region has essentially been that um, over the last 10, 15 years, China has in different ways been escalating uh, all of them. I mean, the most dramatic shifts have certainly been in the South China Sea, where you saw the um, the, the huge um, spread of the artificial islands that China was building and then the militarization of these uh, artificial islands. Um, but there are very few states in the region that have outstanding uh, maritime disputes with China that have not seen them escalate um, in, in recent years. And then in certain cases, this is fused with uh, the historic relationship, historic tensions in the relationship. So we see that particularly with China and Japan, uh, China and, and Vietnam. Um, but then in addition to that, what you've seen and, and how you kind of kicked off the, 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 the introduction to this podcast U.S. You, countries in the region have oscillated between being worried about there being a China-U.S. kind of G2, that the two powers would, um, between themselves, uh, set the rules and um, reach agreements for, for, for the future of the region, um, to being more and more concerned that this is a relationship where there are dynamics that are um, heading in very problematic directions. Um, certainly, economically, the question of a kind of bifurcation of uh, the economic models that the two sides are pursuing, the, the question of a kind of decoupling, particularly in um, the realm, uh, in, in sectors of advanced technologies, um, given the integration of supply chains in the region, given the integration that states in the region have with both China and the United States and key US partners, the idea of there being a real split, a real bifurcation, I think has already been um, a significant source of, of concern. Um, but of course, the biggest concern of all is that you get a major military escalation. Um, and it's very clear what that would be focused on, um, and which is Taiwan. I mean, you can have scenarios that would involve um, flare-ups, um, military clashes on, on, on other issues in the region. But I, I think by far the greatest concern um, is that you would have uh, a Taiwan-related scenario and, and concerns um, about that. And we can kind of go into to why a little bit more um, have, have really been escalating considerably because China now has the means to do things that it did not uh, in a past era in which, you know, when you go back to, say, the Taiwan Strait crisis of 1996, U.S. military force was so preponderant that, um, that China China simply didn't have the means to, for instance, seize control of, of the island. That's starting to to change. It's starting to turn into a matter of uh, choice rather than a matter of capabilities. Um, and countries, even aside from the military dimensions, have found themselves at the at the sharp edge of, for instance, China's economic uh, coercion. Um, we've seen that from. Korea, the Philippines, Australia, a number of other states. So you've got this kind of difficult balancing act now for, for states in the region. Um, they know that China wants to be the regional hegemon. Uh, they know that China is now willing to use all of the instruments um, of power that it has to, to get there. They know that the Chinese government wants to kind of gradually squeeze the US out of the region, but the economic relationship with China still plays a critical role for their economies. Um, and I think that's that's still the challenge that, that states in the region from a whole range of different kind of vantage points and positions in this are all trying to navigate. Thanks for that overview. And, and, and I want to switch to the military side in particular before coming back on the econ side, because obviously... Mm -hmm. It's been front and center over the last few months, even just this past week, as I said, you know, we had the South Korean leadership come to Washington and now the Philippines and, and you know, President Biden is going to the islands in the Pacific along with Narendra Modi. There's this concerns over there as well. And so we've seen sort of, you know, Australia, UK, US come together. We've seen Japan change its decades long posture around national security policy and, and what it intends to do. Uh, we've seen the South Koreans sort of, you know, uh, ask the United States for some level of um, 
uh, first, uh, you know, uh, contingencies on nuclear weapons and nuclear umbrella, etc. The Philippines is concerned. India is tied in the mountains with the Chinese as well. Uh, something they don't openly love to talk about, about the losses over there as well. How do you see uh, this sort of, you know, military escalation or buildup in the region across the board? And the reason why I ask this is, and again, would love your thoughts on this. In Washington, sometimes you hear about this, you know, by 2027 or close to 2030, yeah. China feels it can sort of take over Taiwan. The United States seems to be in a race against time to undercut sort of the capabilities the Chinese have built. We continue to see reports about area access, air denial type capabilities that the Chinese have, which will undercut American military power in, in the Taiwan Straits. How are you seeing this military buildup and escalation in the region? So I think you've got the long-term trend piece um, and then some of the very immediate concerns that you've had in the last couple of years and looking out to, to 2027. Um, so, I mean, if you look at the long-term trend piece on this, um, I mean, there's been uh, there's been an escalation in military expenditure in East Asia going back some time. I think you can you can date the increases um, back to, to 1989, roughly. You've seen a pretty continuous um, increase in military expenditures across the region. Um, but really, since the 2010s or so, it's spiked considerably. So you have this long-term trend, um, which is states in the region... Uh, in particular, seeing the military build up accelerating so quickly on the PRC side um, and in ways that are then massively outpacing. And, I mean, even though. And if I may interrupt you really quickly, or would you agree that sort of the global financial crisis sort of was an inflection point in the calculus the Chinese had about the, the way in which they could approach this problem? Yeah, I mean, it was it was. The financial crisis had a couple of different effects. First of all, it just shifted the sense of the speed of the power balance. I mean, the power was shifting in a sense. The perception on the Chinese side among Chinese elites was that long-term trends were working in their favor. Uh, the financial crisis sped that up. Um, and it also had this kind of mind shift in a certain sense, which was um, best encapsulated by the line from, from Wang Qishan, um, to Hank Paulson that um, uh, you're not our teacher anymore. Um, that the sense was before that, that in some sense or other, China still lacked some of the sophisticated capabilities of a fully advanced economy, um, particularly in the financial sector. But um, after 2008, um, I think the sense on the Chinese side was actually our model is at least equally valid um, when it comes to how we choose to run our economy. Politics is a separate question on this. Um, but the kind of state-centric model, the level of control, the approach to capital controls, a whole series of these things, there was a sense that actually we did better out of this than anyone else. And the reality, of course, through this period of time was China's growth continued to accelerate um, and others were stalled. Um, and so you did have this shift period um, that was quite marked from 2008, 2009 um, in the years that followed. But very much the most acute shift was something you saw among Chinese policy elites. And, and it's important that you mention this as well, because there's a lot that people will tie to Xi Jinping. And there's a lot that one can tie to Xi Jinping um, and the policies that he's pursued. But this, this was before that point. Um, it's also a point in which some in the years that followed basically said this was the break point from a vision among some parts of the Chinese elite, still part of a debate about whether cooperation with the United States was the, the path forward and was the most effective way for China to realize its, its position in the world, to a view that said we're heading into a more confrontational era. Um, and this is the point at which you start to get all the analysis about Chinese assertiveness. Um, this is the point in which you know, even at that juncture, you're starting to get these lines from Yang Jiechi talking about China is a big country and other countries are small countries. Um, and you know, the, all of these kinds of lines directed to states in, in, in Southeast Asia. And so this is then a period in which you certainly get an acceleration when it comes to some of the expenditures and some of the anxieties that you have um, in the region about what power China is becoming, a far more assertive um, power that seems to be less minded towards cooperation with with, with the United States um, and where in a whole series of these different territorial 
disputes and maritime disputes. Um, China is just more overtly using um, coercive means than than, than it was uh, in in the past. Um, so that's I mean the, the, that's the kind of longer term timeline piece on this. A couple of the things that you mentioned, uh, I, I think, are more recent trends. Um, you've seen this shift, for instance, when it comes to China's approach to overseas military facilities. Um, you mentioned the um, uh, what we've been seeing in the Pacific Islands, where there's been a huge level of anxiety in in, in DC about uh, Solomon, Solomon Islands, um, for instance, in the agreement there. Uh, we've seen China moving ahead with uh, a facility in Cambodia. Um, and it wasn't so long ago that China was saying it would never have overseas military bases. Um, and of course, we had Djibouti first, uh, but we're now seeing this kind of acceleration um, in efforts to move from, you know, we also used to debate dual facilities quite a lot. Now we're just having more overt military facilities that China is, is, is looking to develop in, in some of these cases. So that's new in, in a certain sense, or at least a more marked shift in, in the last few years. Um, but I think through the pandemic, uh, I think the striking thing for some of the countries that you're talking about, whether it comes to what played out on the border with India, what played out with some of the economic coercion that was deployed um, against Australia, um, you basically saw this level of assertiveness on multiple fronts at once. China's strategy in the past was very much focused on um, going soft on some countries, hard on others, picking and choosing, divide and rule, this sort of thing. The aim was to avoid there being a a counterbalancing coalition that developed. Um, In the period from 2019, 2020, 2021, it seemed that China was prepared to go hard on multiple countries all at the same time. Um, and I think when you see what's played out in Australia um, uh, with, with with the AUKUS deal, um, the shift in um, the approach that we've 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 seen um, in India, basically a belief that the border mechanisms that have been established over decades can no longer be relied on, um, and also how you characterise the shift in, in in Japan, some of which lo- goes back really to Shinzo Abe and, and lots of the changes that he had had put in place. But these have really accelerated in in the ways that you you described in in the last two or three years. Um, And so I I think you've had these kind of um, shifts that um, either speed up um, these these longer term trends or a response to some of the very specific phenomena that we're we're seeing. And then you have the the looking through to 2027 um, question, um, because I think the concern that you've you've had um, is, is essentially uh, the 2027 date um, is not an invasion date. It's a readiness date that it seems that Xi Jinping has, has given the PLA, essentially that they need to be um, capable by this point of, 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 of being able to go ahead with the kind of full invasion scenario. I mean, this is very loosely how it's characterized. It's, it's not the, the formulations that you get in, in, in the Chinese documents on, on this. But this is very much how it's, how it's understood, um, that this is a kind of target date. Um, and I think the assessment on capabilities on, on the US side um, has shifted in a way that says um, that we're going into a period of time in which that is a realistic assessment, whether it's 2027, whether it's a little earlier, whether it's a little later, um, we're going into a phase in which um, this this is something that the PLA is going to be at least technically capable of, notwithstanding all the concerns about its combat experience, notwithstanding um, all of the other kind of questions that one might have about the fallout for China and some of its continued vulnerabilities. Um, and in a certain sense, this is where the economic track intersects quite closely with, with the military track, because I think what you've seen particularly in the last year or so in the fallout um, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine has also been this effort on China's side to go even harder on certain areas of resilience, um, resilience against sanctions, food security, strength and resilience, energy security. This has been there in the past. Um, it's, it's, it's always been an element of thinking on the Chinese government side, but you've really seen a lot of that accelerating on the financial side, the technology side, um, and, and some kind of uh, thinking through uh, many more of these sort of contingencies and crisis uh, scenarios and how China can be can be more adequately prepared for that. Um, and, and so I think this is one of the other things that, that we're kind of watching for simultaneously. It's, it's not just the development of the military capabilities, it's how far is China um, hardening its other capacities domestically um, and internationally to prepare for the eventuality um, of a war like this. And of course, the hope is still that one can 
head this off and there are still reasons to think that it will not be a choice that China wants to make and that it's still possible to deter it. And there, there, all of these things are still in play. But certainly anxiety about this has has spiked on all sides, um, including on the Chinese side, which if you were to talk to Chinese interlocutors on this, uh, the concern would be that um, they're, they're worried about independence-minded trends in Taiwan. They're worried about U.S. dynamics with this. Um, they think they may be pushed into something ahead of their actually being ready. Um, so the, the the concerns about these dynamics are, are there among the neighbors. They're there in, in, in Washington and in, in a different way. They're there in China, too. Related, uh, you, you kind of read my mind on the econ and, and sort of geoeconomic side of this conversation, right? We've seen... <clears throat> Again, things like agreements between Japan and the U.S. on critical minerals, electric vehicles and semiconductors and battery technologies are sort of the flashpoints here. But broadly speaking, across the board, we hear about this push for French shoring or China plus one strategy or supply chains moving to places like India or Mexico, etc. And, and the goal really there is to not only deny China access to emerging and critical technologies, but also in the event of a conflict, let's say it's 2028, 2029, uh, you know, not have the conflict significantly disrupt supply chains, both on the US and European side, um, but also in terms of East Asia and keeping, keeping some level of supply chains open. How are you seeing that overall economic strategy, or even let's put it even more broadly, the overall response of sort of the Biden administration or the West, which includes Europe and Japan, in terms of how to prepare for this scenario and this competition with China. Um, because one thing that we, at least I often hear, um, particularly in West Asia and, and the Gulf and folks in the Middle East, is that, well, this is a US-centric issue. Uh, you know, America is just sort of going at it in a way that has become paranoid about China. And I was curious to hear your thoughts on how do you personally assess what Washington is trying to do and the web of uh, alliances or friendships that it's trying to bolster in order to prepare for this, you know, strategic military competition with the Chinese administration. I mean, the, the interesting thing in the last few years has been that although the military, the military dimensions have always been there on, on the US side in a certain sense, there's always been the concern about keeping the edge. There's always been the, 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 the alliance network in the region. These are the parts that in a sense have changed less. The bigger change factors have been on the side of economics and technology. Um, you basically started to get this assessment in the late stages of the Obama administration um, that China was catching up more quickly than had been anticipated. Um, and then it was also doing so through access to commercially available technologies. Um, the most important technologies that China could have that could um, uh, speed up its military modernization um, were commercially available in, in, in different ways. It wasn't just about the kind of classic exports of military hardware that would be caught up in um, sophisticated export controls that were there before. Um, it was things like access to um, uh, advanced semiconductors. Um, and so you started to get this assessment uh, even before the Trump administration came in, but basically started to say, um, how do we need to rebalance the technology relationship to, to China to be able to head some of these um, concerns off? Because um, we are no longer confident that we're going to be able to maintain the military edge. And this translates very directly into whether we're able to, for instance, deter China from um, invading Taiwan. Um, the early stages of this were more cautious, um, and there was more of a view that maintaining, you know, a modest edge um, was sufficient. Um, I think the striking thing that we've seen in the last year in particular, um, uh, and with the semiconductor export controls, is that it's gone really uh, a, a significant step further in 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 when it when it comes to. Um, the kinds of technologies that the US is now trying to uh, deny to, to China. This has ripple effects across the entire tech sector um, in China and even to a certain extent wider um, Chinese economy. It's very specifically targeted at the um, capabilities that China would need for its military uh, development. Um, it's a very kind of small subset um, of advanced semiconductors, while simultaneously all the um, mature node semiconductors are still being sold um, to China. Um, but it, there's, there's no question that it has effects on uh, the Chinese tech sector that go beyond um, uh, be, beyond the military. Um, 
and I think this this is going to continue. Um, this is going to continue. Um, of course, what the U.S. has also been pushing is to make sure that various other partners and allies um, are aligned with that when it comes to, um, and again, semiconductor um, was the kind of advanced guard of this, um, the technology that had implications that were the most broad-based, um, but also where most of the relevant technologies are controlled by other allies. So they could go to the Dutch when it came to um, ASML, they could go to Japan. Um, so, I mean, you've, you've got this very concentrated supply chain when it comes to semiconductors. Um, that means that you can kind of go case by case, company by company on, on some of these um, things. Um, and I think from the allies, um, there are some shared concerns, but there's also a level of deference to the US that it's in the front line on this. Um, I think on some of these issues, Japan certainly has its own independent concerns. Um, there's certainly some concerns on, on the European side about what it means for China's kind of military buildup. Um, but I think for some of these states, there's also a deference to a U.S. analysis that says they're the ones who are going to be in the front line on a Taiwan conflict. They're the ones who need to assess the military balance. And so there's been a willingness on some of the uh, of these states to to adjust around that. So you've got a very specific set of issues that relate to um, the technologies um, available to to China um, uh, and 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 what that's doing across the the, the commercial sector um, and. The measures that were put in place last October on the U.S. side, the new export controls, go far further and deeper and are far more comprehensive than anything you saw during the Trump administration. And China has been much more concerned that it's not just the kind of first order effects of this, you know, as you saw in the past with, for instance, um, some of the measures that were taken against Huawei and, and, and ZTE. Um, it's gone many levels deeper in terms of all the way down the supply chain, controls on US persons, a whole series of other uh, things. Um, so you've got this piece of it. Um, you've then got what is the firm level driven piece that some governments are expediting and helping in, in certain ways, but is also something that you're getting in the boardrooms, um, which is the move away from just-in-time supply, the move away from excessive concentration on single source suppliers, which tends to mean China, because a huge um, proportion of, um, as we saw in the pandemic, um, uh, production facilities were concentrated there. Um, and so you've, you've, you've kind of got, um, uh, which was then with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, these issues were then heightened. I think you've got the double hit essentially of COVID and the Russian invasion that said our entire model of supply chains does not work anymore. We're seeing all the inflationary shocks of all of this um, working through the system already. Um, one piece of that is Taiwan, and it's this is the year in which, if you talk to the companies, there's more interest in trying to figure out the Taiwan scenarios than you've ever had before. Um, and I think the thing about this is, I mean, you, you cite some of your conversations. What we know from the economic analysis on a Taiwan scenario, even the most minimal scenario that's a blockade or something like this rather than a full-scale invasion, is the shock to the global economy is on a scale vastly greater than what we've seen with, for instance, the, the Ukraine war, greater than what we saw with the financial crisis. Um, no one is left out of this. Um, the idea that one can kind of compartmentalize this and say, this is an East Asia problem, this is a Taiwan problem, we can sit this out in some sense or other, is absolutely impossible. Some of that's because of the centrality of Taiwan to global semiconductor supply chains, which is one is not going to be able to navigate in the next 10 years. That's just the reality of, of things. Some of it is the way that, as we've seen in, in, in Russia, the behavior, the speed with which companies will, will, will react to this, the way the financial markets will react. Um, we're looking at kind of $2 trillion shocks and, 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 and things in terms of what you'd have on the absolute minimum scenarios. Um, and th this will this will hit literally everyone there is no way um uh, and, and i mean of course this is before one even goes into a scenario that involves what one would you know potentially be a, a an outright war between the united states and, and china of you know with, with all the implications uh, that would would have so i think you have of course on the part of a lot of the firms um greater seriousness about thinking these things through um on the part of a lot of the governments it's not just about taiwan scenarios it's simply about the capacity for 
uh, economic coercion on the Chinese side, because I think there's the sense that China is instrumentalizing its um, uh, and, and talks openly. I mean, Xi Jinping has talked about building dependence on the part of the rest of the world um, on China while reducing its own dependence. There's much more of a kind of autarkic turn. There's much more of a focus on on um, um, on uh, on on domestic resilience, um, while also trying to build kind of chains of dependence on the rest of the world. And so, of course, there's efforts in areas such as critical raw materials, um, really to reduce. Um, the the scale and scope of this and find ways to rebalance away from China. And in some cases, the companies are already doing their sort of very souped up China plus one efforts. You know, you see this with Apple, you see this with a, a whole series of different firms that have had huge levels of concentration of their production in China. Um, in some cases, it's governments, particularly, for instance, the Japanese government that has been expediting it as offering firms resources and financing to help do this. Um, and in some cases, you're seeing um, the return of a large-scale industrial policy in Europe, in the United States, um, as of course we've seen with um, uh, the Chips Act um, and and the resources that are now going into and and Inflation Reduction Act and kind of mirrored efforts in in, in Europe and Japan, um, essentially to pull back um, in particularly some of these key sectors, green technologies, semiconductors, some of the production um, domestically. And of course, this is also tied into a wider question in the US side about kind of reindustrialization um, and the kind of economy that um, you you need to build, given as well the political implications that we've seen of a financialized, deindustrialized economy, a lot of which is attributed to the way in which the prior model had interacted with China and the way that China was. Um, and um, of course, there's the, the economic literature on you know, the China shock theory and its implications, um, not just economically in the United States, but the political spillover implications of that as well. So I think there's this concerted attempt on all sides to try to address a lot of these issues while being acutely conscious that this, I mean, the, the terminology that we saw from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, just the other day, um, mirroring what's being said in Europe is de-risking, not decoupling that the economic relationships with China are going to remain very large regardless of this. There isn't going to be a wholesale disentangling. It's going to be reducing the riskiest levels of dependence and then these advanced technologies and some decoupling essentially of um, certain um, advanced tech sectors that have become very intertwined and are now being unraveled. Um, but you're still in the middle of all of this going to have very, very large scale trade and economic relationships between China and the United States, China, Europe, China, Japan, China, India, China and everyone else. The the point that you made on on sort of what China is trying to do with increasing dependency on everybody else while sort of reducing its own dependency on others, I, I want to get a bit deeper onto this. And, and it's linked to something that, you know, obviously you've been following, I've been very closely talking about in the context of Pakistan is sort of the debt distress we're seeing in emerging and frontier markets, right? From yep. Ecuador and Ghana and Pakistan and Sri Lanka and all of these dozens of countries struggling the one thing that I've been thinking about is is in the context of this strategy that China has is, okay, these countries have binged on Chinese debt. Um, although I fundamentally disagree with this debt trap diplomacy argument. And if you have a, a different view on that, I would love to hear on that. But, you know, you're, you're exposed to debt from China that you need to repay. But for many of these countries, you know, while in the trading relationship, China may be the biggest trading partner, it's basically a source of imports, not exports. Um, so you look at a country like Pakistan and you will say, OK, um, the vast majority of exports go to either the United States or Europe. Um, and you have the strategic competition boiling uh, uh, between between the West and, and, and China, which then means that. You know, you owe a lot of money to the Chinese. You need to go to the IMF to get the bailouts. You earn your dollar proceeds to pay back the Chinese from the West. Um, and so you're you're in this game where the sharpening of this rivalry is going to leave you with a really bad proposition in the sense that the countries that you're seeking bailouts from uh, actually don't want to keep bailing you out because it backstops Chinese debt. But then the Chinese have a depend have created this dependency relationship that you cannot get out of because they're they're not buying your goods. So how are you seeing this in the context of these sort of distressed economies around the world that are, in my view, at least caught between a rock and a hard place and pre pretty much in as this competition sharpens, don't know how to respond to this because 
there just isn't a lot of good options, aren't a lot of good options for them to navigate. How are you seeing that from the Global South's perspective shape up in the next few years? I mean, I think we're at a crunch stage with this, really, um, even in the next year. Um, I think if we're not able to get um, a resolution in some of the most serious cases that is a convincing one, Zambia, Sri Lanka, some of the kind of ones that everyone is looking to as as metrics for the other cases, um, then, I mean, this is we're going to have a really serious problem um, because this is this has become for exactly the reasons you you, you mentioned um you, you you've talked through these con- a number of countries are stuck at the moment um there's 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 no way out because no one is willing to move there are the countries that will refuse to bail the chinese side out china is making a series of other demands um uh including on um uh though it seems to have backed off um a little um on um uh on the multilateral development banks being um part of the the debt relief um, package. Um, so, and and I mean, I think the problem is, although you don't have a debt trap exactly with with with, with China, um, and there was, I mean, neither because China wasn't intentionally getting countries into bad debt, um, nor because in some of the cases the proportions of the debt were not necessarily excessive as such on on the Chinese side. But what you have had is this kind of toxic effect, which is um, because you have this unwillingness. Uh, I mean, some of the clauses in the contracts, as as, as we know, on 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 from from the publication of a lot of uh, these, the the work that Aid Data William and Mary did, um, we, we we have seen some of the the claims that China's made in terms of kind of its preferential status, secrecy of some of the um, uh, secrecy clauses and some of these things, which have made it more difficult for countries already. But now we're getting the kind of as as we're getting the, to to a situation in which a number of these countries um, are actually defaulting or or um, then we're still in a situation in which um, China is putting obstacles uh, in the way of um, being willing to take haircuts on the debt and things like that, which are which are then meaning that even when the Chinese debt isn't a large proportion, as is the case with Sri Lanka, for instance, it's affecting the capacity of some of these countries to deal effectively with some of its other creditors, not just other states and the Paris Club, but um, uh, the private sector creditors um, as well. Um, I think that there is still, I mean, this has not been um, a kind of pure geopolitical dogfight on this. Um, It's been a tense and difficult set of negotiations that have taken place in each of these cases. There's real pressure on China to move on on this. There has been at least a little bit of 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 movement on on uh, on some of the cases that we've we've talked about, um, and a little kind of bit of manoeuvring at the recent. Um, spring meetings, but the time it's taking is already costly for some of these these countries. Um, and uh, we may get to a situation in which China is willing to um, um, essentially reach some sort of an agreement with um, the Paris Club on, on, on this and, and do something that does look like a reasonable version of debt relief. It's in China's interests um, in the end that they're able to work out a framework on, on this that works. But they're very concerned about precedent setting. They're very concerned about maintaining their bilateral leverage over these countries. Um, they're very keen to get something for it as well. Um, I mean, they've been trying things out with this. Will it you know, give us more stakes, give us more voting share? What are we going to get if we're going to play along with um, with with this? And that's just causing a lot of collateral damage for, um, for 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 these economies. I think there's enough at stake for the various sides to figure out at least some kind of temporary agreement, as as we've seen in recent years already on on, on some of the, the 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 debt frameworks that they're in. We have seen agreements on IMF packages. I mean, this has not been impossible, but the tensions around this are not going to go away because. I mean, this in principle should be an area of cooperation um, uh, to, 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 to get these countries back on their feet again um, financially. Um, in practice, it is an area of absolutely acute competition um, in terms of what the bilateral economic relationships look like, what political influence this translates into, all of the other issues that we were talking about before. There are many of these countries, a number of these um, countries are, are important for strategic economic reasons, for other purposes, military. Re- I mean, all the other things are bound up in in, in these questions. Um, so I think we'll get um, 
be the meeting in Paris that will be an interesting one um, as well coming up in, in, in June about new global financial compact. Um, I think it's still an area that everyone is pushing quite hard with, with China. And it is one of the rare cases in which there's pressure on China from all fronts, from the multilateral development banks, um, uh, from the Paris Club and from the developing countries uh, themselves on, on, on these questions. And because so many countries are in the same boat, um, it's harder to be able to do this on a purely bilateral basis. Everyone is watching the precedents that are set in terms of how China handles these um, cases with others and can reasonably ask China to do, to do the same with um, with them, which is why these, I mean, Sri Lanka is not, of course, an obscure case, but I mean, in each of these cases, they're not systemically important economies. But I think the decisions that are being made um, in, in the cases of both, um, you know, Sri Lanka and, and Zambia in particular, are ones that everyone is now looking to for their, um, uh, for, for, for what precedent they set in some of the other cases that we're dealing with, because we're dealing with a lot of cases right now. Yeah, I think it's it's like a moral hazard problem for the Chinese now, right? Is is there's a yes. line of people everybody's watching to see what you do with the others, uh, with with one to for the others to step up and say, well, what about us? Um, last question, uh, for you, Andrew, um, is if you're looking uh, or sort of you know having a conversation with policymakers in South Asia and the Indian subcontinent, and like primarily, let's say India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. What would you want them to be paying attention to, let's say, over the next 12 to 18 months, uh, particularly in East Asia, just to be on top of how things are shaping up, right? I think we've sort of, when I speak to interlocutors, particularly in Pakistan, they get a bit, uh, you know, riled up on on sort of the US-China competition, believing that this is just Uncle Sam doing Uncle Sam's thing, whereas my view has been, you know, look at what the Japanese and the Australians are doing, look at what the Philippines is doing, etc. Things we've just talked about. What would you want them to be paying attention to in, in, in the context of our conversation, just so that they're fully in tune with how this competition is shaping up? Um. So a couple of things I would flag. First of all, it's going back to this Taiwan question. Everyone is preparing for this um, and trying to think this through. Whoever is not thinking this through um, is missing out on one of the kind of biggest geopolitical security and economic risk factors in the next decade. Um, and the behavior of states around this question, behavior of companies around this question, there are a lot of ripple effects to this. So um, I think it does, it, and, and and I mean, as we were discussing earlier, um, no one is exempt from this. In, in fact, the, the economic analysis suggests that developing Asia is the hardest hit from some of the spillover effects after Taiwan and China themselves in some of the scenarios that, that we're talking about. Um, so without embroiling in the politics and sensitivities around it, there is value in thinking these questions through, preparing, analyzing some of the risks, analyzing what some of the consequences would be. Um, I'd recommend a recent paper that Vijay Gokhale um, wrote looking at this specifically from an Indian perspective, because um, India has also been quite cautious about treading when it's come to treading around the, the, the Taiwan question, which is simply a go through, understand the history, understand the consequences, understand what this might mean in some of these scenarios and, and, and do more preparation. And I think this is going on in lots of places right now that had not done that work in the past um, and are just having to factor this into um, planning in a more serious way. Um, and I mean, this is not just a US driven um, kind of mania on, on these questions. It's a genuine analysis that says China's gonna have the capabilities to do this. China believes it has the capabilities to do this, has the intention to do this. Um, I still uh, on the lower end of thinking that they really want to do this in, in the next few years. I think there will continue to be reasons that they do not. Um, but there's very legitimate and serious analysis from 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 um, uh, from from non-alarmist people um, who see this as quite a plausible scenario in, 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 in even in the next few years, and particularly some of these big risk years, including 2024, um, and some of the risks that there may be when we have the Taiwanese elections, uh, when we have the next U.S. elections, um, and some of, and how those forces, how those political dynamics are are going to converge. So that's one piece. Um, the second thing is. Although there's a lot of concern about the side picking and um, um, the bifurcation uh, parts of, of what's going on on the US-China front, um, this is a big opportunity moment as well for a lot of other states, uh, particularly in, in the Chinese neighborhood, in, in, in the Indo-Pacific, um, 
across the developing world, um, there's been this hyper concentration through the last phase of globalization on China. Um, and there are a large number of firms right now and a number of governments backing them to do, again, not decoupling, but some level of diversification um, and de-risking, um, which means that while still being able to maintain pretty decent economic relationships with, with China as well, um, there are substantially greater opportunities right now to be able to benefit from the shift in um, uh, production facilities, supply chains um, to other states in, in the region. Because I think in the case of a lot of firms and a lot of governments, they're still going to be looking in Asia and they're going to be looking in, in parts of Asia harder um, than they, they had in the past and trying to find ways to overcome, I think, some of the political and economic obstacles that might have held them uh, back before. Um, we're obviously seeing that in the case of, of, of India, particularly uh, markedly. Um, to go back to the Apple example, it, it, it is a good example of this. Um, but you, you, you see that in parts Tim of the Tim Cook South. was just there. Yes, I mean it's the 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 scale of these things is is very large, and you're 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 getting the companies going to governments and saying, you know, what can you um, even if you're not bound into the some of the free trade architecture, and you know, in some cases there are. I mean, of course, it's been an issue with with, with India. Um, are you able to do various sector specific things that mean that we can import these products from here tariff free? We can do. What would it take for us to? Um, uh, to, to locate some of our, our facilities um, there. Um, and I think there's going to be a real wave of this um, in, in the coming years. And it's important to um, try to position around it. And, and again, none of this actually, as we've seen in Southeast Asia, takes place in a way that's inherently um, antithetical to a close economic relationship with, with China at the same time. Um, these, these things are um, are, are absolutely possible simultaneously. And of course, what we're also seeing is more mobilization of financial resources um, competitively uh, from, um, you know, in partnership with global infrastructure, global gateway, um, some of these energy transition packages that are being put together uh, in a way that we also haven't seen in, in, in preceding years, because the, the perceived need to compete with China and to, in different ways, position themselves um, uh, in, uh, in in their relations with some of these economies when it comes to green technology, when it comes to critical materials, when it comes to some of these other areas. Um, this is intensifying in terms of the resources that are, are, are coming available. We've, we, we've seen that for South Africa, we've seen it for Indonesia, we've, we're seeing it in a whole series of different locations right now. And, and that's the other thing to position around. I mean, there was, of course, all of this positioning that we saw in the last period um, for how to benefit from the significant influx of resources that were coming through um, from the Chinese side on the Belt and Road. Um, Belt and Road is, of course, entering a more difficult phase. Um, for reasons that we've, we've we've discussed, but there are new resources coming on stream um, as well, um, and I think um, and and some of this is not just again it's it's not just from governments. A lot of this is is private sector uh, driven. So I think there is um, you 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 can some of this has been characterised as a kind of deglobalisation trend that's underway, um, and certainly there is an element of nearshoring and reshoring. Um, but there is also in this just diversification and um, a kind of intensification of, of, of some elements of the globalization trend that the countries that are adept at positioning themselves around can benefit um, arguably from, from both sides. Um, and I think that's the other thing to not only see this as a kind of geopolitical trap right now, but, but figure out how to um, take advantage of, of some of the opportunities that, that, that are there too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's a huge opportunity across the board, uh, whether you look at, you know, assembly of, you know, low value add products, um, but then going all the way to advanced manufacturing, which is something India is trying to do. Um, Andrew, this has been a fascinating, wonderful conversation. Uh, I have certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure the audience would have learned a lot as well. Um, the last uh, thing I ask my guests are, you know, in addition to your wonderful books on this topic or any other topic, what, what are some two or three books that you would recommend people pick up and read in case they want to go a bit deeper into some of the subjects we've talked about today? Um, so I think in this shifting phase of, of Chinese foreign policy, um, I think it is actually quite important to go back and um, take a hard look at the history of, of PRC foreign policy. There's, there's some of these questions that we, we didn't always get into quite as, as deeply, including, I think, what we're seeing on Chinese alliance building, partnership 
building, the new models that it's developing. We talked a bit about what the US is doing. China's doing a lot of this um, itself as well. I think that's very much part of it. Um, and I think it's quite uh, a book I'd particularly recommend uh, for that is to go back to John Garver's protracted uh, uh sorry, not protracted contest, China's Quest, um, which is his fantastic history of the whole sweep of PRC um, uh, foreign policy, which I, I, I think goes in um, and, and, and lays out a, a very helpful kind of framework for understanding the longer term evolution of, 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 of Chinese thinking, going back to some of the earlier questions about its, its positioning in the region, its relationship with Russia, dynamics with the US, and, and, and just tries to fit this together into um, a bigger overall picture. Um, I think the, the Chris Miller book is, 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 is certainly worth uh, looking at. It's been circulated um, a, a lot, of course, at the moment, chip war, um, I think semiconductor piece of this um, is is particularly um, uh, central to um, to all of these issues, and there's a lot that one can tease out just by looking at um, looking at it as a as a particular case study in in, in that regard. Um, I think when it comes to um, uh, there's a lot of this that is in the non-book realm, um, and and I think it's 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 also a good time just to go um, and do look through a series of recent speeches on on, on China um, that are actually about the economic dimensions of this. The recent speech by Jake Sullivan, um, the speech he gave the previous year just before the semiconductor measures were put in place, um, uh, the speech by um, Janet Yellen, the speech by um, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, which I think is the most important speech from China we've heard by a European politician, um, and also to go and look at Christine Lagarde's um, speeches from the last two years, um, um, uh, which really looks at what the implications of some of these developments are um, uh, in um, uh, for inflation, um, for the economic structure of the world that we're now living in. I think there's been an adjustment around this being a new reality, and you're getting a lot of politicians who are now just trying to think through the consequences. That cluster of speeches, um, I think, does some of the best job in really articulating these debates, and, and I think captures quite well where um uh where where these 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 issues are are, are now uh, resting so i think for 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 the most up to date developments I, I think some of the political analysis from from these people um is is even better than, than some of the books I, I am so glad you mentioned speeches because it's it's one of the skills i was taught in grad school and i think in this age of uh, social media and 2 minute 20 second or less 60 second clips um, people aren't used to listening to entire speeches given by politicians. And my view, I think you would agree with this as well. Sometimes it's very, very important to listen to what they're saying, especially on important topics to understand where things are and where they're headed, because it's the most clear articulation by them about how they're seeing the world. So I'm glad you did that. Um, and again, uh, thank you so much for taking out the time today. This was wonderful uh, and, and keep up the great work. I personally learned a lot from your analysis and it was uh, it was an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Delighted to join you again and th thanks a lot for the fantastic discussion.